Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 53. I'm Tian and Duyeb, and as pretty much every week, I'm recording this show from London, which is now the new capital of terror, which is going to upset Transylvania somewhat. And let me tell you, I am cowed right now, really bloody cowed and afraid. And by that, I mean I've had a glass of milk and I'm really not sure if it's gone off or not. Anyway, yes, last week there was a violent assault on Westminster which tragically left five dead, including the attacker. Uh, A probably horrible bit of news to start the podcast on, and it was all made much worse by the news and politicians' constant inability to have simple human empathy and instead see the event as some sort of opportunity to push an agenda. Fox News, a channel that generally would be more useful if it did just report on things small red-haired mammals do, interviewed their terrorism pundit Walid Fares, who said that one man had shut down London, which simply wasn't true. I mean, the only way one man could shut down this city of nine million people would be if he kept trying to use his broken Oyster card at the Oxford Circus ticket barrier during rush hour on a Friday. They followed this by speaking to Nigel Farage, a man who, were he given a penny for his thoughts, he'd be bankrupt on account of all the refunds people would want plus compensation. Sadly, Fox News did actually pay him in dollars, and Nigel obliged by saying that this tack was due to uncontrolled immigration, something that he refused to retract when it emerged the attacker was, like Nigel, a 52-year-old man from Kent. I know, I'm shocked too. I mean, Farage looks like he's at least 65, right? Though, to be fair, Emperor Palpatine also exudes hate and it's done nothing for his skin either. So the big question now is whether Nigel will start trying to ban 52-year-old men from Kent coming to the UK, which might be tricky as most of them are already here, or perhaps he'll campaign to close maternity wards to stop more British-born threats. Though that will be tough as the Conservatives already have that angle covered. After Farage, Fox spoke to the woman who makes Ramsay Bolton look like philanthropist of the year, Katie Hopkins, who insisted that London was cowed, afraid and not united. Which wasn't true, as if a man with a knife and a car terrified Londoners, then none of us would have gone outside for years due to the influx of 17-year-old hoodies and celebrity chefs. Now, I don't want to get too home-proud of the city that I've always lived in and has always been my home, but 
this whole thing really reminds me of when I was in King's Cross Station about a month after 7-7 and evacuation sirens went off and a voice over the tannoy told everyone to leave the station immediately. And you could tell who all the tourists and visitors to London were as they were the ones that were racing up the stairs in a sort of panic with lots of noise and concern while all the Londoners queued for the escalator and then grumbled loudly about, oh, more fucking delays and, oh, God, it's going to take me fucking ages to get home. That's how we react to crisis. We're not afraid or cowed. We're quite calm. Uh, Pretty grumpy about it. But yeah, I'm sure many, like myself, were very saddened by the attacks and sent our thoughts to those who were killed or hurt and their families. But definitely not afraid. Definitely not cowed. I mean, bear in mind that every year on November the 5th, we celebrate a failed attack on Parliament with fireworks and baked potatoes. This hasn't stopped lots of idiots believing Hopkins and Farage, though. But to be honest, if all of those people are too afraid to come to London, as a Londoner, I'd be pretty relieved. ISIS claimed responsibility for the attack, but they are always so quick to claim things that someone should really call them up about missile PPI they might have. And actually, police have said that Khalid Massoud, the attacker, was inspired by terrorism, uh, so not dissimilar to the TV series Homeland, but that he probably didn't have anything to do with ISIS and that he was a lone actor rather than a lone wolf. Uh, I think that's the new term for it, presumably because lone wolf glorifies and makes him sound more terrifying, whereas lone actor sounds like someone who'll keep telling you about that bit part and casualty they once had, but how they're now just between jobs and you'll get quickly very bored and walk off. But Masood did use the phone app WhatsApp an hour before the attack and no one knows to who. So now the woman who watches Lives of Others Backwards, Home Secretary Amber Rudd, wants backdoor access to -to end-to-end encryption messaging apps like WhatsApp. Rudd still fails to understand that if there is a backdoor access for security services, then then they are also open to hackers, which is exactly why many politicians use WhatsApp to avoid that. Rudd says the best people to solve the issue were those who understand the technology and understand the necessary hashtags. No, I've got absolutely no idea what she means either, but I hope she doesn't mean whoever came up with the hashtag Susan Album Party, which reads like sus anal bum party, as I definitely not trust them with getting messages across correctly. Theresa May's speech after the attack paid tribute to the emergency services. Uh, The problem is, after all the cuts the government have made to the police force, ambulance teams and fire brigades, they'd probably have just preferred it if she'd paid them in cash. Oh, and in a week where Article 50 is being triggered and the UK begins its process of leaving the EU, the clocks went forward an hour on Saturday for British summertime, so it's nice that something is making an attempt to be progressive in this bloody country. How are you? Really? Oh, sorry about that, but I hear there's a cream that should clear it up. Me? Oh, thanks for asking. I am pretty dandy, thanks, and even more so because you lovely lot are listening to this, so thank you very much for that. Uh, And in fact, since Apple have popped this show on New and Noteworthy on iTunes, yes, I know this show isn't new, so it must be noteworthy. Or a mistake. Uh, But since they did that, listenership almost doubled last week, so hello, new people, newbies, uh, if you are listening. Very, very welcome. Um, And if you are new to the show, why not go back and listen to some old episodes to indulge in a sort of reverse nostalgia where you hear interesting interviews about stuff people still haven't taken on board or fixed, and you can just dwell in remembering that, wow, things were shit then as well. Big thanks this week to Vicky, who popped me some money on the Kofi.com account. And if you fancy giving me a few quid for the show, go on. Why not, eh? Just go, go on. Why, why wouldn't you do that? Go on, do it. Uh, then please head to ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro. Or for a more monthly giving me money regular thing, uh, head to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolebro, uh, which I'll be popping an extra bit of this week's interview on that soon. And um, plus a video. Ooh, I know. Exciting. Um, although I'll be honest, we're meant to be filming that video near Parliament on Wednesday, but 
I suspect that that may not be particularly sensitive or easy considering the past week. So well done me and my planning. Um, also, if you fancy giving this show a review on the iTunes page or Stitcher or just attaching it to a balloon and releasing it so it can get stuck in a tree and make children cry, then please do that. I mean, if you are going to go to those sort of levels of effort as the last idea, you know, then why not just go to the iTunes and review it there instead and save all the balloon costs for some tasty snacks. Snacks that you could eat in front of a child and still make them cry. A um, couple of bits before we crack on with this week's show. Uh, firstly, I had a very nice email from Simon, who I met at my Edinburgh preview in Sheffield a few weeks ago and is a podcast listener. And he said, hello. Hello, Simon. That's a good way to start an email. Um, he said, it's Simon here, the T1 dude from Sheffield. Um, and he means type 1 diabetes. And he's uh, pointed that out with an asterisk that says next to the T1, not a Terminator. Glad he clarified that. Um it was interesting hearing a Lord's perspective on the latest podcast. That was last week's with Tanny Gray Thompson. And it put me in mind of a book called Against Elections that encourages sortition, like jury service, for consultative chambers. And he's put a link to the book, uh, which is by David Van Rebrook. 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 One of those. And uh, he said, I think it makes quite a convincing case. And I'm part of a political book club that's going to discuss it next month. Um, so that sounds fascinating. I, I haven't had a chance to check out the book yet, but it looks very interesting. Probably worth getting um, if you are interested in that sort of thing, too, which I presume you are. You listen to this. Um, I really love that there are political book clubs as well. Are any of the rest of you in them? I just can't stop imagining people sitting around saying, well, of course, you can't help but judge it by its cover. It's called his little red book, for God's sake. So thank you, Simon, for your email and recommendation. Uh, it's nice to do a book recommendation on a podcast. I feel very cultured indeed. Um, also, it's the last week of March, so I want to do a last few tripod recommendations for you all. Um, again, if you haven't taken part in this, it's an incentive during March to get people listening to more podcasts. So if you're on Twitter and you want to recommend this show or, or other shows to people, uh, stick the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-Pod, on there. Um, a necessary hashtag, perhaps. Uh, Amber Rudd, perhaps, is it? Uh, and hopefully uh, it'll get a few more people on board um doing my little bit for it i've been recommending podcasts for the last few weeks on this show uh this week i would highly recommend uh, cognitive dissonance which is a u.s uh, skeptics podcast um with a wonderfully dark sense of humor where they like to review the kind of past week of bullshit uh, both religious and political it's fascinating very sweary very dark sense of humor uh, beware if you are concerned by that um the prestige podcast which is a lovely sometimes super super in-depth film discussion um cheap show podcast which is uh kind of as it says on the tin it's a very very funny comedy podcast about cheap stuff i very much enjoy it uh the weekly economics podcast which i find a hugely useful 30 minute easily digestible chunk of economics coverage um i have no idea about economics as anyone who's listened to this show for more than a few episodes will know um that podcast really does explain it to idiots like me so very worth a listen um and lastly uh my brother um the last skeptic who does all the music for this podcast um he has his own podcast called thanks for trying where he interviews two mates from the world of entertainment previous guests would be like doc brown or ed scrine um or jordan from rizzle kicks people like that um me i'm on one um and uh they all get very drunk on free booze while he chats to them and it's very very good uh so do check all of those out and please do recommend this one as well um also if you fancy giving this show a vote on the british podcast awards listeners choice please head to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and type us in it's very easy um and lastly also well almost lastly uh thanks to everyone who came to the Stand Up for Refugees show at the Lowry in Salford on Friday. Um, I wasn't on the gig. I was backstage helping run it all rather than on stage once, which was both kind of 
weirdly enjoyable and frustrating all at once, but the lineup was so, so good. Uh, it was Sarah Millican, Jason Manford, Isma Almas, Katie Mulgrew emceeing, Mrs. Barbara Nice, and Jack Carroll, so it was brilliant. Um, and uh, they everyone stormed it. We raised just under £10,000 for Help Refugees, which is amazing. Um, and we have got more shows coming up in Brighton, Bristol, Hartford, and Birmingham. So do check out the Stand Up for Number 4 Refugees page on Facebook for more info. And lastly, 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 I promise, last bit of admin. There's so much bloody admin. It's almost ad max. Um, little bit of a short notice on this, but... I am hosting a show on Wednesday at Conway Hall in Holborn in London, uh, London, capital of terror, um, called Stand Up for EU Nationals. And it looks like it's going to be a brilliant night raising money for the Joint Council of Welfare of Immigrants. And it has comedy from Sindhu V, Granny Maguire and Shazia Mertzer, uh, as well as me hosting. Um, and there are facts about EU migrants and the post-Brexit future from former podcast guest uh, Ian Dunt and Philip Legrain from Reality of EU Immigration. So fascinating stuff and funny stuff all combined. Um, all the money goes to a good cause. Uh, tickets are somehow between £8 and £18. I'm not sure why or how that works. Um, and it starts at 7.30, so please do come along. Right, on this week's show, uh, I am speaking to James Devoy, who is a Scottish producer and political satirist for STV and BBC Scotland, on what's next for the land that is the knowing haggard face of Britain on top of England's withered arse. Then there's Trump stuff, of course, and of course, more bloody Brexit, because if you're listening to this after Wednesday, then Article 50 has already triggered harder than an alt-right teenager when you ask them why they're scared of women. So, all of that, but of course, first, let's not forget this. So last week was full of tragedy, um, as on Saturday, the sudden death of UKIP was announced as its only MP, Douglas Carswell, a man who looks like the sort of nightmares the Muppets might have, left the party. Leaving the Conservatives to join UKIP in August 2014, a move that many considered was the political equivalent of stepping sideways into a bush made of turds, Carswell willingly resigned his seat as an MP and then won a by-election in Clacton, becoming the party you hate the establishment's first member of the establishment. Since then, Carswell has received constant abuse from former UKIP leader and the 1% of bacteria domestics can't kill, Nigel Farage, and party donor and human pedal bin, Aaron Banks, both of whom were incredibly angry that Carswell had helped progress their party and are now even more angry that he's left saying that he worked against UKIP. I mean, I can't imagine UKIP has ever needed any help in its own failure. Carswell admits that he joined UKIP to help run the direction the Brexit campaign would go, but now says that that job is done. And to be fair, if you can think of anything else UKIP stand for other than Brexit or aiding party leader Paul Nuttall's compulsive lying addiction, then you're doing a lot better than me. I mean, let's be fair, Carswell never really did fit in at UKIP. I mean, sure, he's very right-wing and he's very anti-Europe, but he's never been caught saying something racist or doing a Hitler salute, and he actually won a seat at an election, so it's totally at odds with all the rest of them. There's speculation as to whether Dougie will go back to the Conservatives or not, and while he says he'll run in his constituency in 2020 as an independent candidate, there are growing calls for him to now call a by-election. Whatever happens and whatever you think about him, and for the record I do think he's a devious shit who forever appears and sounds like someone who can constantly see ghosts, he did aid UKIP by both joining the party and now by leaving. I mean, without any MPs, UKIP are now truly the party that, as Paul Nuttall says, represent the ordinary folk, because yes, ordinary folk have zero MPs as well. Do you remember back before the election in 2015 when George Osborne was in training for his job as Evening Standard editor by, you know, constantly making terrible news for the headlines? Ah, well, back then, Osborne promised the NHS an extra £2 billion to frontline services because he said that the economy was strong. 
Well, research by the Health Foundation has shown that £901 million of the £2 billion allocated to the NHS by George Osborne before the 2015 election is going to private companies because it seems the strong economy thrives mostly on people not remotely benefiting from it. The Health Foundation say the issue is that NHS providers haven't had the capacity to deal with rising demand. Why? Well, because of a lack of funding, of course. Huh, silly. And so what better way to aid the issue of underfunding than by giving funding to private companies who don't pay taxes and send any patients that don't get the treatment they want back to the NHS, causing the NHS to be further underfunded. Brilliant plan. I mean, why not solve the problem of being hungry by giving someone your money to buy a sandwich to eat in front of you and keep the change? I mean, it's almost as if every time Theresa May says the NHS is not for sale, it's because she knows that no one will want to buy it when it's completely hollowed out. The NHS are banned from hiring agency staff as of April, and this is amid more and more nurses who are EU nationals leaving the NHS. So, in a matter of months, understaffing could be much worse, meaning the NHS will have to rely on private companies even more. And Theresa May has mentioned a UK-US healthcare deal, so it could, in theory, get even worse. Still, on the plus side, at least Casualty will finally gain the edge that ER, House or Grey's Anatomy gets when there's that one episode, you know the one, about the patient who can't afford their treatment and then probably dies, and those ones always win Emmys. I've discussed the NHS and the crisis in loads on this podcast, so if you're one of those new listeners I mentioned earlier, uh, do check back to episode 41 with Emma Runswick or episode 38 on the How Virgin Care Really Don't Pay Any Tax Ever Ever. What is the worst thing that happens if you miss a deadline? I mean, sometimes I get told, OK, but I need it in by tomorrow. Or at worst, the competition to win a year's worth of custard is now closed. Well, in Northern Ireland, today the deadline to form a new power-sharing agreement in government passed, and, well, one wasn't made. So it doesn't look like they can just sort of slide it under the door in the morning either, because neither Sinn Féin nor the DUP seem keen to make one at all, blaming each other for the lack of agreement. Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill said that the DUP didn't have the right attitude, which I'm guessing in Sinn Féin's mind would be, let's give Sinn Féin all the power. And DUP leader, who has refused to step down despite the Cash for Ash scandal, Arlene Foster, has said that Sinn Féin was not in agreement finding mode, and I guess she'd know as she's clearly pushed all their buttons in an attempt to find it. So, with the Assembly session to appoint the first and second Deputy Minister suspended, it's now over to Northern Ireland Secretary, the very aptly named James Brokenshire, who says that there is no appetite for a fresh election. Which is probably true when there's only really two main courses no one's keen on to choose from. But a new election is one of those only three choices that there is. The other two are a direct rule from Westminster, which really isn't a very popular idea, and somehow wasting a lot of time until he can work something out or the parties compromise. So yeah, number three isn't really an option in itself, but if there's no taste for a new election, then James Brokenshire faffing about stalling for time is probably the best appetizer to keep things going before everyone leaves the restaurant unhappy. Yes, it's a shit analogy. Yes, you're right. And now there's still no Northern Ireland solution. And damn, I'm really hungry. Whatever you thought of him, maybe it was very smart for Sinn Féin leader and former Deputy Minister Martin McGuinness to get out and die before he had to pay any part of the bill. You know Scotland, right? Yeah, you know Scotland? You know, the United Kingdom's shabby beehive, the land of the brave but none of the other Pixar films. You know, Scotland, a country that in 2014 voted to stay part of the Union of the United Kingdom on account of promises that we'd stay in the European Union and they'd get further devolved powers. Three years later, of course, we're about to leave the European Union, Westminster hasn't handed over any of the powers that Holyrood really wanted, and you can suddenly see why Scotland is feeling a tad mugged off. And having performed to an angry crowd in Glasgow more than a few times, trust me, they aren't the people you want to upset. 
So now the Scottish National Party, the party with the majority of Scottish Parliament, want a second referendum. A second referendum, if you like. You don't like? Uh, oh, sorry. Well, Prime Minister Theresa May is visiting Scotland this week and talking to Nicola Sturgeon in order to try and persuade her and them to stay attached to the UK despite all the love lost. Like a friend who doesn't want you to leave your dead relationship because it means they have to think about theirs. For Scotland to rejoin the EU as an independent country after leaving it as part of the UK and Brexit, it ain't as simple as just popping back in to say that you had to leave because your friend was a confused mess, but you've got them in a cab now so you thought you'd stick around. So this week I spoke to James Devoy, who is a producer and satirist for STV and BBC Scotland, and very much knows all about Scottish politics so that he can spend time mocking it, which is exactly the right sort of person to speak to for this podcast. Way back in episode 20, I interviewed Adam Ramsey from Open Democracy about Scottish politics and he was very pro-independence, which riled a few of you up at the time. So I'm pleased to say that James is pretty non-partisan throughout, as well as being very interesting, clear and at one point schooling me in my ultimately shit geography. Oh, and I'm very afraid that there is a quick... Excuses, excuses! This week, the thing I always record through that always works decided to not work very well, and so some of the audio of my questions was completely ruined. However, James's was fine. So, I've re-recorded some of my bits, which may mean it might sound a little bit odd in places, but let's be fair, I go to many places and sound odd there as well, so it's nothing new. And don't forget, if you would like this podcast to be more consistently good without that little excuse excuses jingle, you can always donate something to the ko-fi.com forward slash bro account, or the patreon.com forward slash bro account, you know, just to help me buy better things. Anyway, here's James. Hi, James. Uh, thanks very much for speaking with me today. Um, I know it's a bit of an awkward time to speak to you because there was meant to be the vote last week on whether Scotland would have had a second independence referendum. And then, of course, the awful attack in London happened. Uh, bloody terrorism ruined everything. Um, so, look, I think we're now speaking two days before the vote, so might need a bit of guesswork. But do you think it is likely that they're going to vote for a second independence referendum? Is that likely? I would say it's more than likely. I'd say it was pretty much a done deal. Um, the SNP don't quite have a majority in Scotland, which isn't odd. It's the point of the parliament is to really never be able to have one. And the SNP inexplicably got one last time. But the Greens are pro-independence and they'll vote for it. So it's it's all but agreed on before it even happened that it would be, that there will be another one. Or at least that the, par- the parliament will vote for another one. So this is just polite. They have to have the votes, you know, rather than just say we're having... Uh, yeah, well, well, I mean... Ultimately, the vote doesn't make any great deal of difference. It's not a power that Scotland has to to launch another Scottish referendum. The vote will be uh, will is a politeness to say to England, go well, Westminster, can we have the power, please? Um, so it's more demonstrating the in inverted commas will of the Scottish people, certainly the will of the Scottish Parliament, that they want one. But whether or not Theresa May then turns around and gives them one is another question. I know Theresa May is speaking to Nicola Sturgeon today as we record this and amazingly trying to campaign for a strong union, which is such a wonderful bit of irony. Um, do you think Brexit is enough to have boosted favour for Scottish independence amongst the voters? Do you think the fact that the UK is leaving is going to give us more possibility of a yes vote for independence? Oh, I think, I mean, I think it's definitely changed the conversation uh, 100%. The, there was a lot of noise made during the last one um, and some probably pretty regrettable tweets now by all the main unionist parties saying that the only way to guarantee Scotland remaining in the EU 
was to vote no. Um, obviously, that did not pan out well for the for the Scottish people that want to stay in the in the EU. So they um, so I think the question has definitely changed now, um, along with with a bunch of other things. I mean, the other the Tories are now the opposition in Scotland for the first time in in the Scottish Parliament's history and for a long time. Um, so that's changed the conversation a lot as well. The other thing that was said a lot during the last independence referendum was, oh, you know, don't worry about the fact the Tories are in charge, even if Scotland doesn't vote for them, because, you know, they're, you're only ever in charge for so long. Labour will be back and then it'll be back to, you know, normal in Scotland. You'll vote for Labour, you'll get Labour, which is apparently not what we do anymore. But uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly was. Yeah, I was going to say, because there's also the fact that there were loads of powers promised to Scotland that never happened. Yes. Yeah, that's going to be another very difficult thing for people to say, and it's one of those things that the those those promises that I mean, but one of the things about independence is actually it's become quite ingrained now. So there isn't huge shifts necessarily in the polls. I mean, the polls are probably leaning more towards yes than they were. Whether or not they're that actually there yet might not be the case. But those those promises that were made and are going to be difficult to back up. I mean, some some of those pairs did come. Um, uh, nationalists would argue the rubbish ones. So they um, so that that the, the conversation is very different this time around than it was last time. I don't think either of these two referendums have been at the time the SNP would have wanted them to be. I think the first one was a mistake from from their point of view. They didn't want it at that time. They just they got such a huge majority. They had to have one. And it was. It was their prime goal. It had to be done. And then this one has come up because of Brexit, which most people in Scotland, certainly politically and journalists, didn't didn't really think was going to happen. So I think both of these haven't been ideal timing for for the SNP. I think the SNP would have wanted to see these polls a lot closer or, you know, on the yes side before they announced another one. I didn't realise that the first time round was specifically because they kind of had got a majority and they needed to vote for whatever they were voting for, I suppose. Well, I mean, and, and actually it was talked about before in the first uh, SNP parliament, which they had a, minor, a, a minority government and weren't in coalition, so they probably wouldn't have won that vote. But uh, there was a big talk about whether or not they were going to have one, they were saying they would, and then the economic crash happened. So... They kind of got to put it on the back burner, and then the t- next time they got such a huge majority. I mean, it's, it's all over their um, their manifesto. It has to be. So they were kind of locked into it, perhaps before they would have thought Scotland was ready for that question. And I think it's not dissimilar, potentially not dissimilar this time. No one really thought there was going to be Brexit. They didn't really want necessarily to do it while the polls were looking. You know, hadn't changed that much. But here we are again, doing it one more time. I know Scotland are predominantly pro-EU, but there was still about 40-something percent that voted to leave, weren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's going to be, a, that's going to be an interesting question. Uh, I don't quite know how that's going to break down for Scotland. I think whether or not the people who voted to leave the EU who, were, who have been yes voters, whether or not they would rather stay in the UK out of the EU than out of the UK in the EU, my, I would suspect that a lot of those guys would probably still vote yes um, and sort of roll the dice on how long it is before Scotland gets back into the EU or if it does. But, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a real mess. <laughs> uh, the, the, there's not a lot of polling data yet out 
which is directly comparing those two. But um, it's certainly, I mean, without a doubt, the SNP are on the we're going back to Europe bandwagon. There's no, you know, there's no sort of grey area about that. They've been, they've made their point pretty clear that that's what they want to do. And so do the Greens as well, who are the other pro-independent party in, in Scotland who will and will probably get them over the, the line with this vote. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, there is a bit of short shift uh, with uh, who who is who is um, the voice for these forty percent who who vote to leave. There were only two Scottish MSPs who were pro Brexit, and there was absolutely no campaign up here for it at all, really. I guess it's the which will of the people that you're listening to thing again, isn't it? Uh, it's the other way around up in Scotland to in uh, the rest of the UK. Um, I suppose there's all the concern about if Scotland will be able to join the EU very quickly. I know they said that they will be able to, but it might take quite a while because there's a long list of countries, including Albania and many others that are sort of kind of ahead of them in the queue. Um, then they probably have to take on the euro as well. And would that mean there are many years where Scotland would have to survive by itself as an independent nation? And wouldn't that be quite tough? Well, joining the EU isn't isn't a queue. You, know, you don't actually have to stand behind Albania and wait till it gets through. It's not like trying to get into a club on a Saturday. It's um, it's it's whoever is ready to go. So the argument that Scotland would have would be, provided that it, Scotland did gain independence v- quickly after Brexit, it would still have all the laws and things in place to to be an eu member it's it's who's ready to do it so you that would be pr- potentially quite quickly it depends how long independence took to happen you know if, if we're out of the eu for a couple of years before trying to rejoin it potentially the laws and things have changed in the uk that scotland would then have to show it was changing back um so but i mean it would pr- pr- probably be a relatively quick process i think europe's quite keen to have it as well Europe seem a bit miffed that the UK has up and left the EU, and I suspect they would. There are elements in in Europe who would enjoy the slap of the face if they could help Scotland leave and get them back in as quickly as possible. The um, so, and then when the question of the euro comes round, well, currency in the last referendum was a huge question that the SNP really didn't answer very well several times, and I think it. it did them a lot of damage. Well, you know, will we join the euro? You know, we want to keep the pound. We want to do this. And there wasn't really, will the Scottish scrote or whatever it was we called it suddenly come into existence? There was, um, so there was lots of questions around that, that that potentially the euro question, you know, we have to join the euro. Sweden has to join the euro. And every year it goes, yeah, not this year though. You know, there are ways of, of putting off. I mean, you have you do technically have to say we are committed to joining the euro, but you don't ever actually have to join the euro. It's just you have to say, oh, we looked at it one more time, and it's just not going to be this year. Next year, talk to me again next year. It's fine. I'm definitely going to do it. Um, so yeah, so there are there are options. They don't look that good, but there are options to not join the euro. Although, you know, you never know. Maybe an, an independent Scotland might want to join the euro. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, we're certainly very pro, pro um, Euro at the moment, or pro Europe at the moment. I didn't realise that about the uh, Euros. Yeah, that, that you can treat it how I treat sort of charity requests from Chuggers. You know, will you donate to Amnesty? Not now. I will. Yeah. But that is incredible. Sweden are brilliant. 
Well, I, I don't know how happy Europe are about Sweden clearly taking the piss out of them, but uh, but they they are. So that does seem to be an option. So you've got local elections coming up. Is it in May this year? Is that right? Mm-hmm. May the fourth. Yeah, Star Wars Day. May the fourth on Star Wars Day. Sure, right. Are they likely to have any impact on the independence referendum? Does it look like SNP are going to keep their majority lead in these local elections? Um, I would be surprised if they didn't. I, I mean, I'd be extremely surprised. The thing about Scotland is that the the Unionist parties really sold their souls for the no vote last time. They promised a lot. They pulled out all their big guns. They didn't come off well. I mean, they won it, um, but they won it through pretty hard fighting. And I don't think any of the parties came out of that looking particularly good. Um, But what happened was there's now 45% of people in Scotland, and that number doesn't seem to change much. You know, if it might go down a couple of percent or up a couple of percent for um, in polling data. But ultimately, those 45% are pretty much all going to vote for the SNP. And that is an unwinnable majority when it comes to first past the post or the Scottish sort of half and half system of, of elections. I don't know, unless that number goes down significantly, I don't know how the SNP are beaten at the moment. It's uh, so I expect them to do extremely well in the, in the uh, local elections as I expect them to do well in every election, probably until this question is ultimately answered. The news that we get, um, I'm in London and we get very little news about Scotland unless it's something that's going to affect the entire rest of the UK, which is quite unfortunate. Um, But what I have heard is that there's been a schools crisis in Scotland, there's been an NHS waiting times crisis and a housing crisis, not enough properties being built in Scotland, uh, the same as the rest of the UK, really. So is none of that damaging the SNP's reputation or is that all blamed on Westminster still? Well, they have got and used that option often is it's not our fault it's the cuts coming from Westminster we don't we you know that wouldn't be our choice but we have to deal with it that's that's an easy get out for the SNP that they use quite often um the, you know a lot of the time if you if you listen to uh first minister's questions which I don't advise anyone to do I have to <laughs> but you don't so don't um that that's very much the rallying cry is that these are Tory cuts and uh, the Labour Party abstained on it, and you know these. This isn't our fault. We're trying to deal with with a bum hand, and we'll get through it somehow. The schooling stuff, they do get hit on a bit, but uh, I don't actually think there's particularly strong opposition up here. the The Conservatives are obviously the Conservatives are the opposition in Scotland, and they're in a tricky position because they're the government down south. So you can, you know, you got these are. These are your cuts. You can't, you know, how do you argue effectively against something that your party is in favour of? Um, and Labour is a shambles up here. So they just have absolutely no, you know, they've, this used to be their heartland and it's really fallen out of it. And I, they, haven't, they haven't bounced back yet from that. So, yeah, the, the, the SNP could be getting a far harder time for their record. They aren't. And... Um, and, and I think a lot of the SNP supporters just don't trust London, Westminster, the press um, a lot. So they so they get the SNP do get quite an easy time for for mistakes that they're making. And they but ultimately they just want independence and they do drive for that. Is that part of the reason for the schools? I should admit, I don't know a lot about what the schools crisis is, if you wouldn't mind explaining. But I wondered as well if part of the schools crisis is that because they devoted so much time to independence that they've been neglecting other areas. Well, I mean, part, partly it's the cuts that, you know, the whole of the UK's had to go through after, um, after the 
a thing. And another thing with, I mean, Scottish schools are quite different from English schools. They're run by a completely different authority. They're set up differently. We don't go to primary school at the same time. We leave, we go to high school at different times, things like that. Confused the hell out of everyone how there were so many Harry Potter books going on. There's, there's not that many years in high school. How can you possibly be in high school for that long? Different exams, all that kind of stuff. Our university is different. So we... Um, so, so it's it's always been something that Scotland's been quite proud of. We've always had quite a good education system, and it it has slumped uh, within sort of testing and and um, and 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 the quality that's come out uh, of the schools has has dipped a bit. Um, crisis might be a hard word. I mean, it's it's not Dickensian out there. It's, we're not seeing kids running around with no shoes on, but uh, it certainly has slumped from where it was. Um, and I mean, and mainly it's to do with cuts. Partially, it's it inevitably has to come to the SNP, they're the, they're the government in Scotland, and it is a devolved power. Um, the way they've dealt with that is they've put their sort of second in command, John Swinney, on the case, which sort of looks good. But we're still waiting to see how those numbers affect, or or if, if the you know if if there's going to be an effect, a positive effect on Scottish schools now that they have jumbled around the. Scottish ministry a bit, uh, schools ministry, but that, but that, as much as people are trying to talk about it in Scotland, the question ha- has been for the last four years: Will Scotland become independent? And it, in that question, really hasn't changed or gone away. It's it's the big, it's the big thing. People don't even describe themselves often as you know. You get a lot of people. Scotland's always been very political, and you'd have people say, "Oh, I'm Labour to the core," or. Well, mainly they just said they were Labour to the core and there'd be occasional SNP sort of fringe people and there'd be the odd Tory. But that has really changed now. People just really describe themselves as pro-independence or unionists. That's about it. Um, and and it's and the dividing lines have definitely been drawn on that. Um, any criticism of the SNP is seen as Westminster interference and, and anti-independence and any... Uh, any sort of sensible criticism can, can gets put down to that quite quickly. I suppose that's kind of similar to the rest of the UK. Um, in England, lots of people are either Brexiteers or Remainers. You know, it's very divisive. Uh, it's a very divisive world that we live in, isn't it? Rather horrible. I don't know. I, I find it fun as hell. This is my job. This is great. I get paid for this. That is true. I was going to say that the one bit, you know, the few people that benefit from this are the people that have to write about it. It is fascinating. What is it they say? May you live in fascinating... Oh, may you live in interesting yeah, times? Interesting. I mean, yeah, I suppose we are. It's one silver lining to that rather sort of grey cloud. Um, what I was going to say is, are Scottish Labour ever going to have a chance to come back? Uh, for me, it seems like they died a death basically before the independence referendum or leading up to it. And I know there's been a lot of criticism about Corbyn and everything else, but it feels like uh, from the independence referendum on, things have been pretty terrible for them. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in Scotland, um, they were the absolute diehard party of the country. I mean, it was just... If you look at a map now and think how huge the SNP were, th- Labour weren't that far off that for a long time in Scotland, and they used to have they used to have a lot of clout. And I think the the big difference really was devolution. I mean, devolution was was invented by the Labour Party. The government was set up to kind of keep them in power, you know, indefinitely without without a majority. But it was you know everyone assumed, oh well, that's Labour's got their parliament now forever. And um, and actually, what it, it didn't work like that at all. They they didn't keep their talent up here. Uh, if there was a particularly good MSP, they got moved to Westminster. You know, they got to go and sit in the in the big boy school, 
and uh, and the SNP didn't do that. They kept their power up here, and the more uh, dissidence between Scotland and Westminster, which was inevitable because you know we were different decisions. I mean, one of the earliest decisions is is that we don't have um, university fees up here. You know, it's all free. So you start having these little things that just show you a difference, and and that difference spiralled. And when you had love them or loathe them, Alex Salmond up here, he was was a very good politician. He was a good orator, and perhaps the Labour Party ignored that. I mean, they we had um, Ian Gray up here as a Labour Party leader who who ultimately lost to the SNP. Uh, no one knows who he is at all. You could show people in in the news offices I work in and they'd take a minute to figure out who that was. Um, he very nearly lost his seat as well. It was... Labour definitely took Scotland for granted and and allowed this question of independence to be asked. And now it's been asked. It's the, it's the driving force of Scottish politics. So, I mean, the, for a question, you know, what, could, could Labour come back? Yes, obviously. I mean, anyone can. The SNP weren't that big, you know, at the start of the parliament. It doesn't necessarily take long, but they would have to do some work. Um, and they are they are broadly disliked by the people who used to vote for them quite a lot. And I think getting into bed with the Tories for the last independence referendum and being seen, you know, she can gel with, with the Conservative Party did them zero favours and they are definitely reaping the rewards for that now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with James in a minute, but first... If you're listening to this podcast before Wednesday, then it is only a matter of hours before Theresa May triggers Article 50, which isn't really a trigger. It's just a sort of formal notification of intention to withdraw. Yes, yes, I've spent about 10 minutes sniggering at that as well. I mean, it's amazing how we're basically saying we're going to stop fucking you because we need to totally fuck ourselves now. So May will say, hey, we're leaving EU and the two year countdown will start like an egg timer aiming for the most ultimate of boiling points. 
Of course, if you're listening to this after Wednesday, then you're probably unable to hear anything I'm saying on account of all the celebrations and street pies as people eat their strictly British canapes. Uh, oh, wait, hang on. And their British cans of Stella and glasses of British wine. Uh, oh, wait, hang on. Right, it's going to be a bunch of people in the rain sharing a saurine, isn't it? So, Article 50, and then the Great Repeal Bill on Thursday, and then at least a couple of months before we even begin talking to Europe again, unless, of course, we drunk sex them at 2am because we're trying to forget. So, with all of this imminent, it makes perfect sense that Labour should jump in last minute as the ticking clock hits 00.01 to save everything at the last second. You know, after voting through the Article 50 Bill and voting against MPs having a say in the Brexit deal. So yeah, more like jumping in at the last minute and being caught even more directly in the blast than you were before, which isn't really ideal if you're divided already. Labour have said they won't support the government on any Brexit deal unless it meets six tests. These tests are a fair migration system for UK businesses and communities, retaining a strong collaborative relationship with the EU, protecting national security and tackling cross-border crime, delivering for all nations and regions of the UK, protecting workers' rights and employment protections, and renaming it Brexit, PS Labour are the best, please stop being nasty to us at PMQs. Sorry, I mean, uh, sorry, I meant the last one is ensuring same benefits currently enjoyed within the single market. So, as you can see, some of those are pretty much what the government has said it wants anyway, with things like same benefits enjoyed in the single market being the last question on the test that you never studied for, and when you get to it, you realise your pen is broken. Though, to be fair, Brexit Minister and the official emoji of contradiction, David Davis, did say in January in the Commons that the government have come up with, and I quote in my best David Davis voice, is the idea of a comprehensive free trade agreement and a comprehensive customs agreement that will deliver the exact same benefits as we have, but also enable my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for International Trade, to go and form trade deals with the rest of the world, which is the real outside of leaving the European Union. Sound, sounded pretty pretty much like him, didn't it? Pretty pretty good impression. Take that, Rory Bremner. So, uh, yeah, he said that. So either this is a very clever plan from Labour to enforce a Brexit that they want, or it's a plan that completely forgets that it's impossible for a deal that meets all six tests, so Labour won't back the plan, which some of them voted against having to have a say in anyway, and then May will just go ahead and enforce a deal that no one likes, and Labour will have lost even more favour with everyone. So we'll see, but you know, I worry that even if they have got there in time to stop the explosion, that Labour will still be cutting both the red and the blue wire at the same time. UKIP have also set their list of six tests, but frankly, any test UKIP set, you can probably pass just by spelling your name right in the first place, and they don't even have an MP anymore, so they can fuck right off. A think tank has said that Wales is going to be hit hardest by Brexit, as more than 60% of Welsh exports go to the EU. And of course, they're also going to be losing all the EU funding in their local communities. At the same time, of course, Wales will be barely affected by the loss of EU workers because they don't really have any anyway. And to be fair, if you've lived in a hot country all your life, you're not going to head to a place that's 99% rain or 1% rugby, are you? Of course, Welsh Conservative leader Andrew Davis has said that this is all project fear because apparently anything, unless it's projecting that Brexit is going to increase imports of unicorns by 6,000% and we'll all automatically piss in gold, unless it's that, apparently it's now project fear again. It's so petty. Only last week, 72 MPs have written to the BBC to complain that their coverage of Brexit has been pessimistic and skewed. You won! Get over it! And that was only a few days after a number of MPs demanded and were thankfully denied that the Brexit bill be printed on vellum because we may as well make as many creatures suffer with this as possible. 
There's currently, as I'm recording this, a BBC Question Time Brexit special on right now, and I'm not watching it because I don't hate myself. But I did watch a bit because, hey, no one is that confident. And what struck me, apart from UKIP's Suzanne Evans having a voice that could attract bats, was how often the audience seemed to not understand that just because you want something to be a certain way, it might not happen. I mean, how long does that continue for, and what's the end game? Sure, if it all somehow goes swimmingly, then brilliant. But if it doesn't, and we're fucked, and then we set fire to everyone who screams anti-Brexit heresy, then we're going to have even less of a workforce and more understaffing due to all the people we've set fire to. Then we're going to have even less to export as well, and all the high tariff costs of firewood from Europe is going to destroy the economy. I did turn question time off on account of blood pressure fears, but also I heard a man in the audience uh, refer to the money we have to pay the EU when we leave as just the bully in the playground taking your lunch money, and that was too much to bear. I mean, do the bullies at his school make you sign contracts? They are very advanced. Also, Alex Salmond mentioned exports of Scottish salmon, and no one shouted, that's you, that is, or are you going on holiday? So why would I put myself through that? Can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit! Yes, it's a new jingle for a new regular Brexit Fallout feature. And that's right, this week, it's Fentimans! You know, the ones who make Curiosity Cola, where you're mainly curious about why it costs so much when it just tastes like cola. But their bad guy in a Liam Neeson film named Brexit supporting owner Eldon Robson said that they are going to move their drinks plants abroad if exporting costs become too high. Mate, your drinks are in bottles. Just pop them in the sea and hope they float the right way. And you voted for it in the first place, idiot. But food and drink looks like it's going to be in a bad way without a decent trade deal with Europe overall. The National Farmers Union, the Food and Drink Federation and the British Retail Consortium have all written to the Prime Minister saying that they need a free trade deal with the EU, otherwise food costs could rise sharply. Hey, still, you know, those fancy celebrities are always saying that we need to get back into foraging and hunting for our own food, right? And, and, James Dyson, uh, so don't worry about this, because James Dyson, you know, you know him, the one that does the vacuum cleaners, well, chill, because he says he's very optimistic about Brexit. Although, to be fair, he does love anything that sucks. No, I'm not sorry. And now, back to James. Scottish Labour's kind of drive now, I think Kezia Dugdale mentioned, was the idea of a federalised Scotland or a federalised United Kingdom, I suppose. Is that a viable plan? Uh, well, it's the plan that they came up with last time as well. The, um, Gordon Brown, who famously always intervenes for the first time, it's a sort of a running joke <laughs> up here. Brown intervenes in the independence referendum and we go, yeah, we know he did it last week. Oh, he said the same thing last week as well, but you can guarantee it was always the first time. Well, now now it's now it's on. Gordon Brown's here. He's going to come and sort it all out. He was uh, suggesting federalised UK last time. Didn't get it. Um, and so this time... I think I think a lot of certainly pro-independence voters, but I think a lot of pro-union voters uh, don't look at that as a likely option. Whether or not that would be a good option, I think actually that would that would diffuse a lot of um, of independence voters who who didn't necessarily get that option. You know, federal uh, Devo Max is another thing they talk about. You know, when it's in all but name an independent country. You know, but. Uh, but but these were promises that have been made before about federalised, you know, and and, those, and very sp- similar wording as well. You know, it's almost as though they've just flipped back through the Better Together campaign logbook and gone, oh, that was a good one. We should use that again. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, potentially, if there was a plan put forward for, you know, they said actually here is what it will be, rather than federalisation will happen 
in a sort of vague sense. Um, maybe that would help, but uh, but so far that plan hasn't actually arrived. It's just the word. So I don't. I think people are taking some of those promises with a, with a pinch of salt. And and the Corbyn thing up here. Uh, actually, I was quite surprised by how it played because he had a lot of support when he was standing. There was, you know, there was the people flooding the streets as they were all over the UK to meet this left-wing Jesus. But uh, I think that that has also dried up. I think a lot of the support that Labour still has, and it's not a lot in Scotland, uh, is more of the Blairite side than the the Corbyn side. Really? Um, I mean, like I say, there's there's like ten of them or something. But uh, but. Certainly the people that are working in the party at the moment come down for uh, on the or a lot of them at least are coming down on the on the on the more Blair side, you know, the populars trying to win it rather than lefty revolution from the inside. But um it will be a very, very long road for them. I mean, Scottish Conservatives, there aren't many of them. Uh, I know you say they're the opposition, but they're not, as you mentioned earlier, a massive opposition. Well, yeah, they didn't improve that much in the. They're not. They didn't improve that much in the polls. It's just the the collapse of Labour. The way the Scottish Parliament works is that it's partially proportional representation, and it's supposed to keep absolute majorities out. You know, last time the SNP did get one, they've not at the moment, but that was that was more of a quirk of maths than anything. They actually increased their vote share this time, but that ended up meaning less seats and. That Labour's collapse is really where where the Tories came. The Tories have always had high teens, low twenties uh, in elections in Scotland, and they've still got that. They might get up to mid twenties, but uh, they are also seen as the party which has got the most chance of keeping the union together. You know, it's very much their goal. They it's in the it's in the party name in Scotland. It's not called the Conservative Party in Scotland. It's called the Conservative and Unionist Party in Scotland, and so I think they are picking up a little bit from that but um so they'll get good numbers for the tories but yes you're right they're they're not they're not much of a force as much as ruth davidson is seen as the golden child and she's going to win the the scottish parliament i think they would need the liberal democrats and labor to leave before that happened they're not uh, they're, they're not that it's not been a tory it's not well there's been a bit but there's not been a tory resurgence in scotland it's more just that the other parties are doing so abysmally badly against the smp that the tories have survived it well, I mean, that must be a really depressing reason for doing well. You know, if you look at your stats and go, it's not that we're doing well, it's that other people... Oh, are not doing if you look badly. at the Tories. They look, they look like they've just, they've just won all the prizes in Scotland. They are delighted. They shouldn't... I mean, it, no one could have predicted that the, that the Tories would be the opposition and Labour would be third. No one in their right mind in Scotland would have told you that, even five years ago, that that could have been what would happen. It's uh, it's pretty astonishing situation to be in, that the Labour Party that was forever has been this voice in Scotland. Since the 50s, the Labour Party have just won and won and won. And I think actually that that's that their success in Scotland is is one of the things that the SNP uses uh, is to show how British politics doesn't reflect Scottish politics because for countless times, Scotland has voted Labour and received Tory governments. You know, the whole of the Thatcher era, which was not a good time for Scotland, you know, she started the poll tax up here first for some reason that I can never fathom. Um, and she... So, you know, and Scotland felt very betrayed during all that time. The miners' strike was a big thing up here too. And they were voting Labour and they weren't getting it. And now the SNP have come along and said, oh, we've got a way to stop that happening. And I think that's quite attractive to people who voted Labour 
for a long time and didn't feel like that Westminster was was reflecting Scotland. So if Scotland gets another independence referendum, which is largely to do with Theresa May saying yes or no, and I think there have been hints that she might allow one for after Brexit, I think that was the idea, wasn't it? I think that's... I mean, I think... That, I'd be very surprised if she said no, because it's... Uh, there is a, a clear argument to be made that it's the will of the Scottish people to have one if the Parliament votes for it. Um, if I, I think there's... Obviously, there'll be maths done to figure out when's the best time they can win it. No one wants to be the Prime Minister that lost the union. So um, I think there's that. And I think... I mean, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to say. If you are going to do it, you're going to have to wait till after Brexit. We're, you know, we're in the middle of something here. You can't just grab your stuff and leave when we're trying to figure out whose stuff it is. So that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. I suspect, really, it's just down to quibbling over time with Theresa May and whether or not they think it's better to do it soon or later. Later has the, has the, the danger of what happens if the SNP start to get their polling data up and you've given them an extra year to, to slog away at it. So it'll be an it'll, yeah it, it, it's it's Theresa May I mean and it's still the whole question of if we do it again is it's still the unions to lose you know they're still ahead in the polls but the questions have changed and whether or not the SNP can get those five percent that they need to to get on board. Say for example, if Scotland votes yes, does it then become a one-party state where it's SNP only and I don't know rebuild Hadrian's Wall? What's the sort of plan? How does it work? Well. Two things. Uh, Hadrian's Wall's in England, so if we rebuilt it, that would be a nice thing to have done for the people of England, but probably not that useful for Scotland. Um, you know, you'd have a lovely wall, and we would probably charge you, <laughs> so Trump style. You'd have to pay for it. But uh, so, uh, so, but I think, I mean, when it comes to borders, that's going to be a really difficult question for for Westminster because. It, it would seem to me unlikely that there's going to be a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. That would, that's not going to do any help for the peace process, which is already pretty wild in Northern Ireland at the moment with, uh, with their situation at Stormont. But um, so if, if the Brexit transition shows that there isn't a hard border, it's unlikely Scotland would get one. There are certainly countries in Europe who are in and out of Europe and don't have hard borders. Sweden and Norway don't have a hard border. Um, uh, the... So, I mean, so there's that. The Sorry, what's the first part of that question? I got excited about Hadrian's Wall and just lost my thread. You totally schooled me on geography. Um, there's <laughs> one above Hadrian's, isn't there, that I never remember? Well, there's, one, there's one near Dundee, but Hadrian's Wall used to be the wall between Scotland and England, but just by sort of back and forth for uh, the last what, 2,000 years, it happens to now be just inside Cumbria rather than on our side. So... Um, well, there you go. See, geography, history and <laughs> politics in one interview. It is fascinating. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, if the Conservatives aren't really in opposition, Labour are sort of dead in the water, and then if Scotland becomes independent, does it just become a one-party country? Well, um, well, one-party state would imply that there aren't other options. It's more that the other ones are losing so badly, it just looks like there's a one-party state. I don't think anyone could accuse the SNP of cheating to uh, to just win lots of elections it's difficult um those parties need to come up with an answer to this question which they aren't they're they're saying no 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 no, it's a bad idea and we shouldn't do it which is fine they may be right but they aren't making a very interesting appeal for that and they're not winning over any of the voters who are pro-independence they're 
there, there's lots of, I mean, there's a phrase in Scotland that, that you hear in the press and you'll see on Twitter a lot and things like that, which is just SMP bad or hashtag SMP bad. And basically it's just that whatever the Tories or Labour or the Lib Dems say in Scotland is basically, it doesn't matter, the SMP are evil, look at them, they're terrible. Or, or the phrase, it's a one-party state or it's, you know, it's, this is against the shut up and go back to your day job and all that kind of stuff. It's very anti-SMP, which is fine, and that might work if you're dealing with a situation in Westminster like Labour versus the Tories and you just get people to dislike the other one. But it's actually been taken quite as an insult by a lot of the of the SNP supporters in Scotland. So you've got a situation where they're really entrenching one side versus the other, and I don't think you can beat that. Unless they can appeal to the yes voters and get them back to voting for unionist parties, it's very hard. You know, they're splitting the unionist vote three ways in Scotland, and that doesn't split well for them. Whereas the SNP are, to all intents and purposes, the only pro-independence party. Yes, you can vote Green, but in Scotland, in in the... In the Scottish Parliament, you get uh, two votes. So a lot of people might give their first vote to the SNP, which is a constituency vote, like it would be anywhere else in the UK. And then they might give, they might, not all, but you get, give a few votes to the Greens, and the Greens pick up. They've got six at the moment in Scotland. But the, the SNP are, are dominating. And unless, unless the unionist parties can reach out, they are going to continue to dominate indefinitely. I don't really know how you beat that. Potentially, if it's a no vote, and if we end another referendum and there's no vote, I think there will be a big slump in support for independence just out of fatigue. You know, it really is going to be that kind of right now we're done. So, but I still, even if even if the SNP lost ten percent of its support, that takes you down to thirty-five percent. That still wins elections, easily wins elections. So, you know, I mean, you'd have to take a huge huge chunk out of the SNP. And to do that, I think you need to have an answer to a lot of the questions that they maybe aren't having. I don't think they, I don't think politics has adjusted to what's going on in Scotland yet, or at least the unionist side hasn't. I think that's one of the reasons the SNP are doing so well, is that they have adjusted. I mean, they caused it, but they also have taken it in their stride from then on, and they've, they're doing extremely well out of it. Yeah, well, I suppose they're the ones that caused the change, so they know how to handle it, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and, but... Uh, they're also very good. I mean, that's the thing that you people can forget. And I, I see that sometimes from down south, people going, oh, Nicola Sturgeon, you know, when she was in the debates and things like that, she came off very well. Um, that can't be overstated, that, that they're good. She's very good at her job. Um, I mean, and as a politician, I mean, whether or not she's a good first minister, but she's she really dominates that room. You know, Kezia Dugdale, I don't know... Who, you know, she hasn't always had the best advice and she's, you know, and she's fighting from the back foot. You know, her party's had a lot of losses. The Tories are and always will be Tories, which in Scotland doesn't go down that well. Um, I actually think Ruth Davidson's quite good, but I don't think there's there's that weight behind them that the SNP really do keep their quality up here. Uh, not to speak badly of their, of their um, MP colleagues, but the SNP really do focus on Scotland, and that, that shows when they are debating and campaigning, is that the, the, they've got real quality up here. Well, you know, it's the same as in Prime Minister's Question Time. It's always Angus Robertson that has the strongest question. It always seems to be the one that trends quickest on Twitter. So, you know, yeah, very interesting. I do sometimes wonder if the SNP were to run south of the border, if they'd gain a few seats here as well. Well, I, I mean, that's... It's been it's been posited the idea of what would happen if you ran down south and whether or not they would win seats, but ultimately that they wouldn't be representing you terribly well. You know, if if Northumbria had an SNP MP, that MP would 
focus entirely on Scotland. If Liverpool became SNP, it's still the Scottish National Party and they would still be there to represent Scotland. And I, don't, I mean, it's a nice idea uh, and, and hilarious, but I don't know if, how well it would function if you were sitting there going, yeah, shut up about your Liverpool. So, um, but uh, I mean, I, I think one of the things that the, the SNP, one of the reasons that like, Angus Robinson can come over so well in, in uh, Prime Minister's question is that he's, his goal is to focus on quite a small area of the UK. So he doesn't have to worry about the difference between what he says compared in Dorset to Skegness to Inverness. You know, he, he's like, what do this small group of people like? I will just go for that. I don't need Middle England to agree with anything I say. And some of that's very attractive to people all over the UK, of course, but uh, he doesn't he doesn't really need to care what's being said elsewhere. He's focused on, and, and, and something that I don't think is that common now in, in British politics is they have one clear goal that they are trying to achieve. And they, they, and people, they are obviously criticised for the fact that they won't shut up about independence, but really they shouldn't shut up about independence. It's their one job is to get it, um, by hook or by crook, to get it. And so winding up Westminster is a pretty good way of, of doing it up here. We, you know, it's, we do we do like to give a little bit of cheek on occasion, the Scot. So, um, and if we won at football, it would be all over. If we were winning anything in sport, just kiss the union goodbye. But, um, but uh, we aren't, so it's probably safe on that one. Yeah, fair play, fair play. At the moment, I think in today's current politics, we'd almost prefer um, hilarious options to anything else, uh, just for a bit of change. So, um, very last question for you. Uh, apart from your good self, who would you recommend? Um, or a lot of the listeners follow online or read the works of or websites or groups or anything like that if they would like to follow Scottish politics a little bit more closely and perhaps aren't based in Scotland? Well, uh, the BBC's always got some pretty good stuff on it. Um, uh, It got a lot of criticism during the referendum, but I still use it. I mean, I think the thing about Scottish politics is this is generally quite partisan, so you kind of have to mix it up if you want to get a good handle on what what is being said. A lot of... A lot of places are pro-no, a lot of places are pro-yes. Some of them are a bit more bonkers than other on both sides. Um, so you can get, I mean, if you're interested in pro-independence conversation, Common Space is a website and they do podcasts, things like that, which are good for for a fairly reasonable um, account of Scottish politics. I mean, they, they are undoubtedly pro-yes. Um, you can go to the bonkers side of Scottish politics, which is pro-yes, which is Wings Over Scotland. Uh, he gets a lot of criticism, but he says a lot of nuts things. But then on the no side, a lot of, a lot of the newspapers are are fairly no. Um, you can... I mean, actually, the, the Daily Record and The Sun oddly cover Scottish politics relatively well. <laughs> uh, the Scotsman... Yeah, the, the, well, the Daily Record has... A lot of these papers... Uh, lost a huge amount of their um, readership during the last referendum debate because they came out for one side over another or at least were looked at to do one side or the other. So they've really stepped it up on a lot of these things. Um, the Scotsman uh, was uh, is a pro-union paper which covers politics quite well in Scotland. Um, there hasn't been that much of a rise of new media on the no side, particularly. Uh, I think that's because they felt quite well served by old media in the last referendum. Um, and, and a lot of, I mean, the, I, I, it's always a good thing to follow Scottish journalists on on Twitter. Aidan Kerr is very good if you can follow him. He's got quite a nice balance. He works at STV. He's one of those 
the political guys there. Bernard Ponsonby is another guy who uses Twitter a lot to talk about Scottish politics. I would say to be careful if you want to go down the Twitter rabbit hole on Scottish politics, there are some nutters out there. I uh, One of my <clears throat> the feathers in my cap is that I occasionally have to run uh, STV's Twitter account, and that is... A very odd experience. I've never been accused of being from so many sides of a political debate before. And I genuinely, I just have to figure out whether or not the news story was balanced by if we got an equal number of nutters from both sides telling me that I was an evil mouthpiece for the other side. And I go, well, that was probably probably quite a well-balanced piece then. That's fine. But uh, yeah, t- Scottish Twitter is, uh, political Twitter is, is, uh, is an interesting place to visit. You might not want to live there. I do. But uh, it's, um, it's, uh, it's an odd one. Big thanks to James for speaking with me. Uh, James can be found on Twitter at JWDEVOY. And do check out his videos from BBC Timeline and STV. Uh, The one where he joins a Scottish Conservative campaigner as she goes canvassing back in May last year had me in absolute fits of laughter. It is properly brilliant stuff. Um, Also on the journalists he recommended following is also on Twitter um, at Aidan, that's A-I-D-A-N, and then two underscores. Ooh, fancy. uh, K-E-R-R. Um, I've managed to get the next two to three weeks of guests lined up already, which is incredibly proactive of me and very rare indeed. But if you have anyone that you'd like me to interview or any political subject you think I've not covered yet that you'd like me to interview someone about, please do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, Parpolbro on Facebook, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, or hey, just drop me a line on WhatsApp just to fuck off Amber Rudd. This week, with Carswell's departure from UKIP being, well, really the only news story that I felt I could ask you to make trivial jokes about, I thought the best question of the week would be to ask you lot what campaign slogan should he have when running as an independent candidate in 2020. At Budgie on Twitter said, Vote for the one politician you know in advance you can't trust. Uh, And he also put, Vote Douglas Carswell and piss off everyone in politics who isn't Douglas Carswell. That is very, very true. At Flair, he said his campaign song should be Winifred Atwell's Let's Have Another Party, uh, which I hadn't heard until uh, I read his answer, and I've listened to it now. It's very lovely. It's from 1954, which, to be fair, is also the sort of era that Carswell would like us to go back to, so fits very well. Uh, Philip Alexander said uh, a bit of Destiny's Child. I'm going to try and sing this probably very wrong. All the bigots who are independent, throw your hands up at me. Oh, 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 oh. Um, at Ethan D. Lawrence, uh, he says, Carswell, independence harder, independence with a vengeance 4.0, and a good day to be independent. Uh, at Graham Triggs, has put, I see no reason why there needs to be a vote. Um, at Matt Huss Comedy, uh, but his slogan, instead of employing words, would simply be the sound of a long, long fart. Again, to be fair, probably sound very similar to if he did just employ words. Um, Vaughn Earl says, Carswell that ends well. Vote Carswell and finally kill off UKIP forever. Um, I mean, to be fair, I think even if you didn't vote Carswell, that might happen. Um, at Broadbeak has gone for the same brilliant pun. All's well that Carswell. Um, at Scott McKeating, uh, this is a lovely use of language, uh, but hopping from party to party like a fly doth do on piles of caca. Um, at Mr. Dave Gill, put vote for Douglas, the Cami Carsey Kipper. And at Lord Mark Stanley, but a vote for Carswell is a vote for the forever floating voter. Perfectly put. Um, Well, I hope Douglas is listening and takes all of those into consideration, though, to be fair, it is unlikely, as he blocked me on Twitter in 2015 when he accidentally posted a tweet about Hello Kitty World on his account, which apparently his young daughter posted, um, and I responded with concern that his Hello Kitty World didn't have enough appropriate borders to stop Miffies from coming in and stealing all the jobs. Wonder why he blocked me. Weird. Dun, 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 dun.
Donald Trump, scary Donald Trump, orange, orange Donald Trump, racist Donald Trump, sexist Donald Trump, stupid Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, oh my god, President Donald Trump, that's a real thing, oh, oh god, it's oh, scary, oh, I'm really scared. I'm not saying President of America and the only man to survive being bitten by a radioactive high-vis jacket, Donald Trump, spends a lot of time golfing, but it was a news story that he actually spent the last weekend in the White House, which is something that shouldn't be a news story. I mean, you'd only report the lion slept tonight if a zookeeper accidentally spilled a barrel of Red Bull in its water and it had concerningly been awake solidly for six weeks. Reporting something how it's meant to be isn't a good sign at all. But then I realised, despite Trump never working, he causes such a large amount of damage in the little time that he is working, maybe that means that the White House staff are literally shooing him out of the door with a golf caddy ready just to save America. Notable moments last week in the Trump administration include a ban on people flying from certain countries to the US um, on bringing any electronic devices larger than a mobile phone on board with them in their hand luggage. The countries affected by this are Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Morocco, Qatar, Kuwait and the UAE, all predominantly Middle Eastern Muslim countries. Um, And this is supposedly a response, apparently, to a terrorist group putting explosives in laptops last year, although there is every chance that they were just Samsung products. Experts say that blocking laptops from being in the hand luggage really won't make much difference to security as if they have an explosive in them and they get put in the hold instead where they're allowed, they'll still explode and everyone on the plane will still die. Plus, it makes the whole security screening process much slower except for the other week when I got stuck behind an idiot kid because he was too busy looking at his iPad to remember to take his belt off. But Gatwick isn't included on the list so sadly he'll still be a dick. And also, it doesn't take into account that I know people who've flown from UAE or Saudi Arabia alongside sheikhs who've got a bird of prey with them. Sure, don't bring your Kindle on, because God knows a terrorist might get on your plane with over 200 books and terrorise passengers by ruining the endings of them, but hey, your falcon that could peck everyone's eyes out is absolutely fine. The UK has also inflicted a very similar ban, which, while it excludes four of the countries on the US uh, list, it does include national airlines, which the US one doesn't. Why have they made different decisions? Well, it could be that they both have a complete lack of information as to why this needs to happen. Or also, according to a Middle Eastern Emirati commentator, it's because a lot of the Middle Eastern airlines now offer flights to the US and UK, and this could put passengers off using them and going for US and UK airlines instead, boosting their business. Which, if that's true, then hoping that they could just bore people onto their own flights, that's a stupid idea. I mean, just wait till people realise that they'll have several hours where they won't be able to watch the news or any of the horrible shit Trump or May are currently doing to the world. God, I'd almost pay extra for that bit of escapism. There are still lots of ongoing investigations into Trump's connections with Russia, including Trump's former campaign manager Paul Manafort having a contract for tens of millions of dollars to greatly benefit the Putin government. All of which is not only shady, but exactly the sort of thing Manafort and Trump were saying that Clinton did. Everyone seemed to forget, I suppose, that when you drain the swamp, I guess the swamp residue needs to go somewhere, and it seems to have been rerouted via the White House. God, no wonder Trump goes golfing all the time. The smell must be unbearable. But the big, big, and yes, I know the laptop ban is big and the Russian connections are big, but the big, big story last week is that Trump Care, the repeal and replacement of Obamacare, was rejected by the House of Representatives by both Republican and Democratic sides. Now, look, American healthcare confuses the shit out of me, but from what I gather, Trump's proposed policy aimed to continue subsidising private healthcare plans, uh, shrimp Medicaid by 25%, and give people who earn more and are very rich massive tax breaks. So basically, taking from the poor to give to the rich like a bright orange evil Robin Hood. 
Now, as I said, I don't fully understand American healthcare policies at all, but what I do know is that an outright rejection by both sides of the House has led to Trump's approval ratings dropping to just 44%, and he's now broken over 60 of his campaign promises. Of course, Trump has blamed the Trump care failure on the Democrats and then on the Conservatives, which looks ridiculous and pathetic. But hey, I guess at least he seems to be keeping his one promise of uniting America, you know, by making them all come together to reject his policies. So that's 64 promises broken, but headlines, President keeps one campaign promise. And in other news, that lion is still asleep or might actually be dead. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, I will be back next week because my diary is really concerningly empty right now and going outside means my hay fever kicks in. I mean, I don't know who the high pollen count is, but when I find the castle he lives in, I'm going to have some words. So please do give this show a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, throw me a quid or two at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and drop me a line about, well, pretty much anything uh, at parpolbro on Twitter, the parpolbro group on Facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com. I mean, really, anything. My diary is so, so empty. This week's show was brought to you by the number zero, which is both the amount of MPs that UKIP now have and the amount of sympathy that I give them about it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.